You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, thanks for coming back, folks. That was a... Um very interesting presentation. I have a number of questions and stuff, but I'm going to put them off for a minute. Do other people, let's all jump into this. And um, here's the homeless guy. In the, oh, there he is. <laughs> I want to know how you do all this stuff. What? I can't. Do, seriously. How do we do all this stuff? Well, the kids are grown. One lives in L.A. and the other lives in Amsterdam, so empty nest. We got more time. They're both in jail. So. <laughs> We're both in? Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> what? No, 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 no. no, no. The, the children kids, are gone. The kids are, so. the kids are grown and gone. Yes, we live so. apart. That's our secret to success. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what it is. is um, we really love what we're doing. We really do love it. And so even when we take time off and we're on vacation, we're still bouncing ideas off each other. And it's just, we do it because we love it. And well, and let, me, let me add a little to this because mm-hmm. there's also, there must be a trajectory here because I know uh, Jeff was a, a very successful um, writer, just mm-hmm. a, a science fiction writer. So, but then it seems to move more into a, a, a panoply of, of different things, you know. Yet, I mean, the first thing I noticed was, well, the uh, the the diseases thing, you know, working mm-hmm. out this, and then you get involved, and through the, um, so I mean, what was the when did it start to become a a um, a phenomena instead of just uh, well, a writer with uh, an overworked writer? That's a good. That's a good question. Um, I think the answer is that we have for. Anne's always been doing publishing activities of, of all kinds of different uh, different natures. I, I was doing editing and publishing and doing the writing, and it would go in cycles. I would write a novel, and I'm not the kind of person who can write a novel in a year or even two years. And when I finish one, I don't start another one right away. <laughs> so I was always doing editing projects in between because I also love editing anthologies and things like that. Um, so we were always doing various projects anyway, but there came a point where... We had our separate activities separate. I mean, she was doing stuff on her own press. We, there was, like, no bleed over, you know, and um, even though we were helping out each other. And so I think the flashpoint came when we decided we need to just collaborate on these things together and pool our resources. And that has a powerful branding effect, for one thing, and it also meant that we could do projects more easily because when you're co-editing, if say I'm off writing a book, Anne can do ninety percent of the ninety percent of the work, work for a few months. If Anne's off doing Weird Tales, I can do ninety percent of the work. Whereas if it was just one of us doing it separately, suddenly things would stall out. And so that's one answer. In addition to the fact that <laughs> we work really, really hard. I mean, I think last year we mostly—I I, I can't remember a day last year where we weren't working eighteen hours a day. Except I did take um, my birthday off last year. Yeah. Not, not this year, but last year I took my birthday off. And, and that, was a function, that was a function of a lot of really tough deadlines that have resulted in a lot of books in a short period of time. This year is a little more laid back. We only have four or five books coming out. Um, and, <laughs> and, and more importantly, they don't involve hundreds of contributors because the thing that killed us last year was doing an anthology called The Weird that had 120 contributors a hundred years worth of weird fiction, um, trying to go to 15 billion estates and agents for ebook rights, audio rights, Spanish agents <laughs> lying about having the ebook rights. We signed a contract. Oh, we don't own the ebook rights. I don't know what you're talking about, but thank you for the check. And um, you know things like that. And then with the steampunk bible, something uh, you know just as as stressful. You know, dealing with all the image permissions and all of that, which is kind of beyond your control to, in, to some degree. And so you know. That's really what kind of messed up our year last year, but at the same time resulted in these great books. I can't it was imagine, a real learning process. I can't imagine us having any project that's going to have less than 30 or 40 contributors, though. I mean, that's just, that would be crazy. <laughs> now, what was, your, what was your history before Weird Tales? Well, before Weird Tales, I was publishing a magazine called The Silver Web, 
under my press, Buzz City Press, and I actually um, published Jeff's um, novella as a novel, uh, Drayden and Love, which became the, the cornerstone of City of Saints and Mad Men. And then I published another book, which uh, is Michael Sisko's Divinity Student, and that book still has legs. So those are the only two books that I actually published, but I had a lot of fun doing that. And I had a lot of fun doing the magazine, but I, after so many years of doing it, I started to get worn out of wearing all the hats because I did everything when I was doing it. So when John Betancourt asked me if I wanted to read fiction for Weird Tales, it was like, heck yeah. My favorite thing in the world, reading, of course. Right. So. Well, just what you were saying about anthologies, I know as a, as a writer, I know every once in a while you think, well, it'd be fun. I could do a book and an anthology and everybody else would do all the work. They'd do all the writing, you know, and you think, wow, that would that'd be really neat. And then it ends up being more work than doing it yourself, you know, because you've got all the, the yeah. stuff. But it seems to me like the origin of most of these is fun. It's mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, I like monsters. Yeah. I know a lot of other weird people who like monsters. And what if I show them these monsters I like and you know no no abs absolutely i mean the, the sense of like play the sense of play is what gives right. the energy back i mean for example the fake disease guide started out as an anthology project i mean as a chapbook project with like five writers and then rachel pollock sent the guidelines to neil gaiman neil gaiman loved the idea he sent it on to seven other writers and before we knew it, it was like holy crap we actually have a 300 page book and not only do we have a book but because we have neil gaiman in it we can actually do you know we can get find a major publisher for it and uh, that started out because a guy that has the moniker of uh, the mad quail, who does a site called The Modern Word, told me that he had mad quail disease in an email as a joke. And that made me think, oh, we should do an anthology of fake diseases. That's I really mean, how it starts. <laughs> so, one, one little idea like that, so, and that's how it starts. So it's, it was actually fun. I mean, it was even fun when we were searching for a translator at the last minute to translate some bogus material from Borges into Spanish so we would have an example of it as a facsimile page. I mean, that was fun. So, I mean, there is a sense of play in there that, that I think helps get through the rough patches. But something else happens when we're working on these projects. Sometimes we're going to come across a writer or a piece of artwork or something else that doesn't fit the project that we're working on at that moment but it sparks an idea for another project. And so a lot of times that happens too. I mean, sometimes I'll read stories for Weird Tales that come into my Weird Tales um, slush pile and it doesn't fit Weird Tales, but hey, it would be great for this anthology or this anthology we might do, and I remember all those things. The same thing happens when people submit things for anthologies. They might not make it into the anthology, but hey, it's perfect for Weird Tales, so you never know. Anyway, yes, please. <laughs> well, in the context of, of these projects, weird is a little bit more accessible. Odd might not be for everybody. Weird is for everybody. As far as I'm concerned, weird is for everybody. You can't have too oh, much weird. But it's more but biological. Odd, I think <laughs> is an acquired taste, you know, kind of like Tsuika. I think odd is actually just also more various. We, when we were doing the research for the weird, we came across a lot of stuff that just didn't fit, but we thought was really, really cool. And we're like, how can we package this in a way that's kind of interesting to readers? And so that's kind of how that came about, too. There's going to be a lot of anthologies that are created simply as the heat lightning discharge from doing the research for the weird. <laughs> yes, please. No, but that's an excellent idea. That actually is an excellent idea. Thank you. It's just a delivery system for the weird, right? <laughs> it's whether it's an ebook or a movie or you know whatever. Sure, why not? Maybe the game aspect would keep it from being weird, though. <laughs> possible. It's you know? possible. Yeah. It wouldn't. Okay, I'm, I'm just guessing. I'm not a gamer. We had somebody up here. That was you. So what kind of things have you guys put the kibosh on something? Like, mm -hmm. you have an idea, it may even be a great mm. idea, but you're like, oh. well, yeah, Th there's one project we want to do called Above and Below, which is about um, floating cities and sunken cities. Cool. The problem is we want to do it as a three-volume set, 
that include <laughs> that is um that is um that is one volume that's nonfiction with images of the historical idea, one volume that's new fiction, and one volume that's reprints. Um, and the only thing we could get off the ground initially was the new one. Yeah, and who wants to publish that? And, huh? and under and uh, and under under uh, constraints that didn't seem like it would actually fulfill the vision. So instead, we pulled the plug on that, and decided we would come back later and keep approaching this, till we're at a point where we have the leverage that I can go. We can go to Abrams or some other publisher and say, "Hey, you've trusted us in the past. I know this sounds crazy, but this would be freaking amazing." <laughs> um, so. So some of those projects are like that. Some of them are because I will have some weird ass idea that I think is actually commercially viable and then we'll go, two people will buy that and one of them will be you. <laughs> um, and then we have to either think of a different way to repackage it because a lot of this is just how can you approach a publisher with an idea where their entry point into it is commercial enough that they think it can make some money because they're in there to make money and there's nothing wrong with that. And then also how can you have an entry point for the reader that makes them want to pick up the book and not think, oh, this is really strange, but wow, this is wonderful. And so when we can't find that leverage, sometimes it's not worth our, our time and effort at that point. And so then we shelve it and we come back to it. Right, because what we really want to do is we want to do really cool, strange, exciting projects, but we want it to get out to the widest audience possible. We don't want to do just something that only a handful of people, cults following, that type of thing. No, we really, when we find stuff that we love and we want to spread it to the world, we want as many people to read it as possible. Right. Well, it seems to me like a lot of, I look at the variety and the, um, the uh, of what you guys are doing, and it seems t to me that, a lot of artists talk about if they're doing something new, like I remember um, um, oh, Salinger said this once. He said the first thing you have to do is you have to create your audience because you have to create people who are looking for something that wasn't there before. And it seems to me that that, and you're right, there's constraints on it. Mm -hmm. But you have to, you know, and, and I'm sure sometimes you, you it flops or it doesn't quite work. But basically it seems to me you're trying to, sort of like what Garrison Keillor did. You're trying to create a, an audience for something that wasn't quite there before, which is a kind of a mixture of stuff, an well, odd mixture. Yeah, sometimes sometimes people really don't know that they're going to love this stuff. We have to yeah. put it out there in the world mm -hmm. and show it to them so that they know that they really want it. They don't. They're not going to know that until we tell them. E each project you is want different. This. Yeah, each, each project is different. I mean, when I was publishing. Um, books through Ministry of Whims, we had a book called The Troika by Stepan Chapman, which went on to win the Philip K. Dick Award, even though it had been rejected by 200 publishers before that. In are fact, there he, 200 publishers? Well, over a 10-year period, there are. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he actually sat with some of the editors. He actually sat with some of the editors that had rejected it at the P.K. Dick Award ceremony, which was very satisfying for him. But, um, but, but we had a problem when, it, when, it, when we first took it that nobody knew who he was. So in the press releases, we acted like he was this master of the fantastic that had been around forever. We had some quotes from some people that we put in the context, not really lying, that looked like he had been around forever. And lo and behold, half the reviews were like, Stepan Chapman, the master of the fantastic, who's a rival for Ray Bradbury and all this other stuff. And so sometimes you just have to be creative. <laughs> yes, please. All my projects have been very visual. When I was doing The Silver Web, The Silver Web was considered an art and fiction magazine, and I featured a new artist every single issue and had like a spread, and I did all kinds of things with design and art and all that, because that's always what appealed to me. I'm a very visual person. And I think that art is a way to get people in, like a cover. I don't know if anyone understands how important a cover is, but a cover is that first introduction. It's like your first, the first time you see something, you look at it. That's what's going to get them to pick it up, and you have to be able to get people to pick it up first. Yeah, and and, and, and it has to relay what they're going to find inside, or else, you know, they're never going to trust you again. So, so for me, art is the way to bring the people in and say, yes, you are going to love this. Yeah. And lo and behold, they do. Yeah. And, and, and um, for me, it's very personal. My mother is an artist. 
And I grew up around her studio and all the gesso and all the canvases and the paints and everything. And, um, and it was very influential on in my fiction because I think very visually. And so art has always been a part of the fiction. The City of Saints and Mad Men has a ton of illustrations inside. And so this is just kind of a progression where we've gotten more and more opportunities because we've proven to publishers that we know what we, we're doing with the visual elements. Um, and so that, that's where the progression has come from. The, the, the book after this from Abrams is actually a writing book that's going to have 150 full-color images. Um, and they're just of turning... what? Some dude writing? <laughs> It'll be all of you doing different things, some, of, some in a bathing suit. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but it'll be relatively unique. It'll be really interesting visual challenge. How do you marry the narrative to the images in a way that the images aren't just window dressing? Um, but yeah, that, that's why it's kind of uh, personal for me. And, and also the frustration is I've always wanted to be able to draw, to be able to paint, and I can't. And so I have to collaborate instead in order to fulfill that, that part of the vision. I mean, I hate China Mieva with a passion because he can draw comics. You know, that's why I hate him. <laughs> I don't hate him. But, <laughs> but I really love the fact that there are artists, that there are writers out there who can also do art, and I wish I was one of them. I also wish I could dance and sing, but I can't do that either. So. Oh, yes, you can. Well, we've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe not the singing part, but the dancing for sure. Yeah. No, but it, but there there are movements out there, like the surrealist movement. People think when they think of surrealism, they automatically think of art, and they think of Dali, and they think of De Chirico and, and other artists. But the surrealist movement was actually begun as a literary movement, and a lot of people don't know that. The same thing for steampunk. You know, steampunk. When you think about steampunk nowadays, you think about the fashion and the makers and all that. But steampunk was started in the '80s as a literary movement. Really, it was it was all about the the words on the page. So they 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 go together. In many ways, I mean, science fiction, spaceships. Yeah. No, I I, I agree. Well, I want to get into steam. Uh, does anybody else have a question right now? Okay, yes. Kind of follow up, which is talking about a different art that you've had a couple of albums. Yeah, Yeah, um, uh, it started because there was an experimental uh, musician in Pittsburgh who had read City of Saints and loved it and uh, had written music to it. And so he put out, he asked if he could put out an album of the songs. I was like, yes, of course you can. (laughs) Um, But then when the second book, uh, Shriek, came out, uh, was about to, was going to come out, I thought, well, why don't we just continue this? And so uh, I, I asked, uh, I emailed the church, uh, the band which had a lot of hits in the 80s, and I, I really, really love their music. They're a great guitar band. And uh, we happened to be going to Australia where they live, and I was like, well, can we talk about doing a soundtrack for this book? And uh, at the last second, the last day we were in Australia, we heard from the drummer, and they drove us down to the beach, and we had this amazing five-hour beer-laden planning session for the album um, and they wound up doing an album for Shriek and so at that point we kind of had to have one for the third Finch and so we I really love Murder by Death which is kind of a great Americana band but they also have kind of a Nick Cave kind of edge to them as well and it seemed right for a noir book and so I said hey would you mind if I send you my book and if you like it maybe we can work out some kind of detail where you, you do a soundtrack and they did the most amazing soundtrack that actually makes my me feel differently about the novel but also makes me feel like they were in my head while I was writing it because it's the soundtrack that was in my head while I was writing it. <laughs> and it, it, is, it is an amazing soundtrack. And, and um, so that was really cool. And it influenced their next album, too. How did it connect with the book? Well, um, the, the Finch soundtrack came out um, at the same time as the novel, and it was available with the hardcover. But it also was sent out to music outlets who some music places covered it more than they would have because it was connected to a novel. And so they would interview me, and so there are interviews in music magazines about the collaboration. And then on the other side, people were interested in a novel that has a soundtrack, and so they interviewed Murder by Death for places that they wouldn't have gotten coverage. So from the PR side, it was really interesting. But process-wise, they told me that it changed the way they did their next album because it did a lot more arrangements for the soundtrack. And that changed their in-studio process, which used to be a little more free-flowing. And so they kind of, it altered them, it altered me. And so the transference wasn't a direct collaboration, but it resulted in a synergy that was quite interesting. So, You'd be surprised how many musicians out there are influenced by, by uh, literary, by books. I actually did a, um, I did a um, yeah. when I was doing the Silver Web, I did a music issue, and it was all, um, 
all the stories in it were about music, but I, but I had throughout it all different kinds of quotes and articles and interviews and things like that with musicians about how different um, books yeah. influenced them, short stories, whatever. A lot of yeah. bands were actually named after you know, some, some favorite book or characters in a yeah. book or things like that. So, I mean, there's a lot of cross-pollination going on. And you can be creative in more than one way. And I found that a lot of people are creative in more than one way. I found, like, like for instance, China, he, he can write and he can also draw. You know, there's a lot of writers out there that are also musicians. And you see that all over the place. So there's a lot of cross-pollination. And people are getting their inspirations from different ways. And people that love to read also like to listen to music. And they want to watch movies. And they, you know, it's... Yeah, There's and actually, more than one way. The, the church have done a couple of science fiction albums. I mean, it's not the way they advertise them, but they were story cycles that were really had science fictional elements. I mean, when we went down to meet him on the beach, the lead singer was reading The Master and Margarita uh, by Bogakov, and somebody else had some other book that was like a new science fiction book, and they were just huge science fiction fans. So, Please. <laughs> We're actually, um, there's actually all kinds of interest and all kinds of things with the cabinet that I can't speak about right now. <laughs> if I look like the cat that ate the canary, it's because I have. Yeah. <laughs> It's coming out in June. June. And what's really June cool about it is, is that date, it's, but maybe sooner. Yeah, it's in the exact same format as this book. One thing we were worried about PR-wise was just, you know, a book that comes out a month and a half after another major book, what's going to happen. But they actually look like companion pieces, mm -hmm. um, except from the fictional side. So it should work out pretty well. So. Now, what do you think of Edward Gorey? I like I Edward Gorey. I think he's Gorey. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, a it, little weird. And he's weird. But awesomely would weird. you regard? I mean, Weirdly to awesome. me, Gory uh, sort of works on the same territory of yeah. between the odd and the weird. You have any other uh, sort of? I mean, Gory is sort of like um, somebody who's uh, more in in the mainstream only, mm -hmm. but only lately, really, through uh, what the masterpiece mystery or something. Um, but uh, can you think of any other like um, uh, sort of canonical um, uh, people that? Not necessarily that influenced you, but that influenced this field which you're sort of developing. Which, All right. Which field? Which field? Like the weird field? Yeah. Well, I see. I see. In many ways, I, I think I, I see these books as a way of putting together image, images and uh, sort of attitudes that uh, sort of work for you and then trying to figure out how to, to connect them. You know how to make connections between things that aren't ordinarily connected. So, so in many sense, you're always, in many ways, you're always selling something new rather than. Well, actually, I, I taking a step back from that question. I mean, when we were talking to Mike McNoll about this project, it was pretty clear that he saw his storytelling as fitting in with the same tradition as Chani Mayville and Michael Moorcock and Sherry Priest. That although it was in a different medium, he didn't really see it as being something separate. And he didn't see influence as being something that was restricted to a single medium. Right. And so I'm not really sure that, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, Mignola is a, is a, is a character, is, a, is a, um, uh, a creator who has been influential on me, for example, as a writer, even though he works in a different medium. Um, so I don't know that, that we're doing anything other than marrying things that we're already dating. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of ways to be creative, as I said before, and it, it's not always exactly what you think. For instance, a couple of years ago, my, my husband and I were in, in France. We were in Paris, and we were walking around um, looking at the different shops, and one of the things they have there is every single shop has an amazing window that's designed so beautifully for that shop. And we walked by this one shop that was a candy store, and the designs of their candy, the way they had laid everything out, it was so beautiful that it made me cry. And, and just looking at something like that, so here's candy, candy for crying out loud. And so why does that move me? It just looks so beautiful. Another aspect would be um, <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite um, fashion designers is Alexander McQueen, who 
who did a lot of the clothing that Lady Gaga wore. You know, he designed a lot of her things, and I just love his stuff so much. And that's a whole other aspect of creativity that could... Most of the stuff that he designed, I don't think real people can wear, except for maybe someone like Lady Gaga. But but you look at something like that, you just can't turn away. You just want to keep looking at it, and I think that that in, can inform a lot of other things. So so it's it's just another way of <coughs> of using your imagination to put something out in the world that someone else is going to connect to on some other level. I mean, I can look at at his 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 dresses and go oh my god that's amazing I'm never gonna wear it I could never wear it but it's gonna it's gonna spark something else in me that will make me want to do something else okay. that makes sense that was, uh, that was like a really amazing introduction to steampunk but my mind just springs outward in other directions thinking about the fact that um, you're ripping off of um, the industrial revolution say 150 years ago so if you, if you go forward 150 years ago could you create another subgenre which would be like sustainability punk um it would actually be survival punk <laughs> um it would be don't shoot me punk <laughs> um i mean i'm sorry <laughs> Can Ashley, I have can a I, piece of I, bread, please, sir? <laughs> Punk. <laughs> Ashley, I would like to speak to that. That um, when when Jeff and I first started working in, with the steampunk anthologies, we did not realize that there was a whole other steampunk movement that was all about the DIY and sustainability and all that. And how we learned about that is the the Weather Channel uh, came to interview us. I was like, really? The Weather Channel. Why do you want to talk to us about steampunk? And she loves the Weather Channel. So this is like actually her dream. Uh, the reason why I was so ex I do love weather, but it was the one place that I could tell my mom and she would know what it is. <laughs> but but I asked I asked our, our the guy that was interviewing us why is he interviewing us and wanting to talk about steampunk? And that's when I found about found out about this whole other steampunk movement that really wasn't about the clothes or the literature or any of that kind of stuff or the art, but it was all about sustainable communities and doing it yourself and 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 um all of that and so so looking at it that way being able to create something with your own two hands and then be, a, be being able to live off of the land being able to do that without having to rely on corporations or things like that that was a whole other aspect of steampunk and it was very political and very exciting for me and i didn't realize that something that some people saw as being so frivolous could really be something so important. So I have no idea where the steampunk movement's going to go. But when I learned about that through the Weather Channel of all places, I, I, I thought that was just totally exciting. And to and to actually answer your question in a serious way, I mean, like the BBC had that a report. To me. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I, no. That was very serious. I mean, my my initial frivolous answer. Um, <laughs> the the BBC, for example, had an article about how airships may become common in ten years because that's a more sustainable kind of technology for transportation. So in part, some of this is this, these discarded technologies that got discarded possibly sometimes for reasons that, that don't make sense in terms of our future. And so our future may in fact be partly our past. So, Well, the other thing is, is that technology is so advanced right now, we're so far removed from everything in our life. And I think that that's one of the appeals of steampunk. I think that's one of the reasons why people want to go back to that, because they want to be able to yeah. hold something in their hands and understand where it came from, yeah. because they can build it themselves. I mean, I used to be able to change the oil in my car, and I can't do that anymore because yeah. you have to have a computer. you know. And I, I think that people want to remove all of those levels so that they can actually put their hands on something. And they love the steampunk movement because they can actually make something with their own two hands. Well, that was my next question, but Asik, you got a follow-up. What is it? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you might need a computer to change the oil in your car now, but it's probably easier to break things now than it used to be. So that's that's very true. Progressive. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> or I punk. Was from the point of view, when I asked my question, I was thinking from the point of view of technology because I'm always going on green tech websites and I'm looking at bicycles that were grown with 3D printers from bamboo that was harvested. Yeah, that, that freaks me out. <laughs> and it's just so, so beautiful because yeah. it's, it's just so evocative of, of a, of a yeah. technology project that doesn't harm the earth, but it's yeah. just so completely... No, it, it's awesome. 3D printers in general just freak me out, though, because I still can't wrap my head around what that means. Yeah. Well, I mean... 
Well, <laughs> well you, have to, you have to understand that I come from a family where my, my mother once faxed something to me and then asked me to return it via the fax. Um, so she thought it had actually been sent. So, um, yes. So, so actually, like maybe she was living in a science thing. fictional world. But. You had a comment. So, so it seems like uh, you guys are um, sort of moving, uh, the conversation is sort of moving in the direction of, of politics and uh, influencing the world. You know, how do we make the world a better place? So I, I understand your orientation, at least from what I gather from this conversation, is primarily towards engaging people. And that's sort of step one. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what's, what's the payload? Like, uh, you know, obviously there's the payload of wonder and all that stuff, and, you know, but do you guys keep in mind most of the time, some of the time, all the time, um, you know, how can you make the world a better place? Well, uh, you know, to what degree does that come into your problem? Well, that's always in the back of my mind. Okay. And I, I think about where I spend my time and how I spend my time and, and how best I can use my talents that God gave me to make the world a better place because that's one of the philosophies that I believe in, tikkun olam, is how to repair the world. And I feel like we're all partners in that, and we, every single one of us has a part to play in, in repairing the world, but we all have a different way to do it. And um, through the projects that, that we do, for me, it's a way of bringing people together because if I can have a writer here in the Philippines and a writer here in you know, Serbia and a writer here in the United States and they're all talking to each other, then, then, then they get to know each other better. And they, to me, that, that's what I do, is I like to bring all these people together because they're all creative in different ways and they can talk to each other with that creativity. They might not understand everything about each other, but they can at least understand that much. And so that's my little way of doing what I do. I think that science fiction and fantasy are a really spectacularly subversive way of, of delivery systems for dangerous ideas because they provide a distance from things. Like if you got into a discussion tomorrow about the Iraq war with two people from different political pers persuasions, you would get nowhere. They would stick to their beliefs no matter what facts you put in front of their faces. Um, but if you wrote something that was maybe set somewhere else but contained the same issues, you might make someone think about it at least. I mean, would you change the behavior? I don't know. But you can, all you can do with literature, I think especially, is provide that opportunity. I mean, a lot of the stories that we take, I think, are subversive in some way. Um, well, I think one of the things that's subversive or strikes me in everything you present and everything you do is that it is, it's world literature. It's not American literature in right. that sense. And right. science fiction is a very American literature. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, American and British, maybe French. But, you know, there's a, there's a conscious effort to, for that. But I still don't understand what it has to do with the sort of um, wry humor and the, the steampunk thing and how that all... I can understand a little... It's a little bit about accessibility or maybe technology that you can understand... But, it, it, I mean, is that the, what's the appeal of steampunk? Steampunk is Victorian England. It's, it seems like it's, it's well, I imperial think, I think, imagery. I think it's giving an opportunity. I think what it is is a toolbox that different writers and different creators use for different things. And, yes, yeah, some of it can be less progressive than others. But it's also providing a space for non-Anglo writers to talk about colonialism and post-colonial issues. It's, it's not really something that is per se one thing or the other. I mean, and neither was the Victorian era. I mean, there's all kinds of horrible things about the Victorian era, and there are some things that were more enlightened. And they may not have been enlightened for people who weren't living within a certain area, but the point is you, you can use it for different things. Um, but right. the other thing to remember is this is kind of an interesting issue with regard to branding because we've done three steampunk books and we've done thousands of other books. <laughs> and so what always happens is like if I'm not writing a novel and I'm editing something, then I'm an editor. If I'm writing a novel and it's out, then I'm a writer because people generally want to just tag you as one thing. So right now we have some steampunk books out and they're steampunk. And I know that Lamb's Head is going to be seen as a steampunk book even though it is not a steampunk book. <laughs> there is nothing set during the Victorian era except for maybe two stories in the entire thing. Um, and there are some things that are kind of mechanical in a kind of steampunky way, but the vast majority of the material um, isn't really steampunk. But it will be seen that way because we've been doing steampunk projects. Well, I so think it's more of a labeling issue and a problem, I think, than, than the fact that we're actually doing all these projects. So right, when you ask that question, you're right. kind of privileging one area of what we do and kind of saying that, like, this is, this is who we are, and it's not really what we do. 
Right. Well, I think that, that one of the reasons why people like steampunk is it gives them an opportunity to have a do-over. A what? A do-over. Oh, well, that's You know, like, we really screwed it up back then. Well, we're going to do it again. <laughs> uh, that's I've heard that. I've heard people tell me that. What I don't know if I does? buy that what myself, does, but... What does it mean? I don't get it. Um, I don't know that it's... What's cool about it? Well, people do like gadgets and inventions and, you know, things like that. Well, I mean, I, I think it really is, like, if you if responded to the aesthetic and the, the art aesthetic and the images that you saw, then there's something about it that is compelling to you. And if you didn't, then you have a different art sense. Um, it's not that everybody has to like steampunk art or have that sensibility. No, I understand, um, but, I mean, there's clearly something in it that, that it, it, like you say, it's a marketing thing, but it's one that you're comfortable with. So, and it's one that... Obviously, a lot of people uh, are comfortable with, and I'm not uncomfortable with it. I'm just wondering, what is it at root? Is it is it that it's clockwork instead of uh, well? Uh, here's one thing about the subculture. One thing about the subculture is, in terms of things like cosplay and whatnot, it's something that both men and women can participate in, and so couples like it a lot because because they they both res they both respond to they can do it together I mean there's certain things unfortunately that certain types of males will not participate in um, <laughs> and, and you know this you know is something that is more of a well it's kind of like the goth movement except it's not as scary <laughs> right but I can't pretend to interpret or, or give you the motivation for all the different impulses that are involved. I well, mean, all, all I can do is document right. them. <laughs> there's, there's, there's more than one approach, and there's more than one opinion. I think we've actually done a fairly decent job of explaining why some people like it. But you just have to, <laughs> Terry, Terry. You're just going to have to all ask right. them. Not to turn the spotlight back on you, Mr. Bisson. I don't dislike it. I just want to, you know, like I say, it's, it's an interesting, um, <laughs> interesting thing to talk about. I think I get. We have the primary history of all that technology, the industrial era, Victorian years. And I think of what Arthur C. Clarke said when he said, uh, a sufficiently evolved technology is indistinguishable from magic. Magic. Mm. So we look mm -hmm. at the mess that the primary technology created, like culminating in World War II, et cetera, et cetera. And we go back and we inject magic into the past. We see fairies and demons and, and the fae creation of that technology back in the 1800s, and it gives us room to imagine, um, which leads to a degree of possessive imagination to now. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's technology that's not magic. But I mean, the fact of the matter, too, is that a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon now because it's popular. Um, that happens as well. But I mean, this is kind of hard to determine in a movement that has gained popularity so recently, because you'll find steampunks who were steampunks five years ago who consider steampunks who got into it three years ago to be posers. <laughs> posers. <laughs> so. <laughs> but I think all speculative literature yeah. is, is, can be very hopeful in nature. You know, gee whiz, look what we can do. I mean, I think that, that that's appeal for fantastical literature. I think that that's an appeal. It's not just escapism, although it certainly can be. I think that, that it also can be a way of redesigning your world and recreating your future. I know that not all fantastical literature is, is hopeful. Some of it is actually very um, disturbing. But there's a lot of different ways that you can look at it. And I think that, that people are drawn to that hopefulness and, you know, what, what could it be? And that's why they like this kind of a literature. Also, Fantasy literature allows you ways to discuss very serious subjects without being dogmatic and hitting you over the head over it. And I think you have the, the freedom to be able to do that with fantasy literature that you can't do with realistic literature. Right. I would like to talk Oh, yeah. Well, I love what you guys uh, and then Jeff said about, um, I think you're right, I think it's like the machinery is naked and accessible in this way that now we're just like, The iPad doesn't yeah. tick. Yeah. And, and um, I like the idea of the do-over, and Jeff, you said something really great, too, that I'm forgetting at the moment. <laughs> but uh, it was good. Uh, but um, I think, too, maybe, like, um, I think the Victorian time, you know, it's the, it's, 
which is one of our most immediate predecessors. I mean, obviously, it's, it's Greek and Roman culture and all that, but I think probably you could look at a lot of things. I mean, this is what I think. Mm. You look at a lot of things going on in the world today, how cities are laid out, nation states, corporations, all this stuff, and I think a lot of that had its, you know, because the Industrial Revolution's maybe been too far back, and, and, and Elizabethan England has definitely been too far back, but a lot of things I think that we're looking at today, we can really see some of the genesis well, of. Well, uh, yeah, I think really what it boils down to is it's there's like the story about the three robots blind robots and the mechanical elephant um, and they <laughs> they each <laughs> see something different the elephant is still there <laughs> but they each of the robots finds a different part of it basically um, and so it's more of an umbrella I mean a lot of people talk, talk about it as a movement but it's more of an umbrella for people to interpret and that's why it's so hard to find the center of it because there is no center of it and that's okay <laughs> it's what? <laughs> it's what? postmodern Post it is, and maybe maybe it's just the uh, classical era of the modern age. Uh, age. Maybe they're yeah. the Greeks and Romans of the modern age. Everything know. old is new again. Okay, maybe. next topic. Just on the like, theme of the story and things, Stephen Dale's working on Blankstone and Minnesota. I'm, I'm a Minoan, so uh, Minoan steampunk. Minoan steampunk. Yeah, since we're not quite sure how I thought you said Samoan steampunk, and I was really excited. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, that's what we've been saying, yeah. And so it's kind of weird that there's a backlash happening just at the moment at which, in terms of the fiction especially, it's getting really, really, really interesting, so. Yes, please. What do you think, um, essays that you're posting belong to this by Sean Tan? Have they liked them? Mm -hmm. Have not seen it, even though I love Sean Tan. Academy Award. Now, what about Sean Pan? I missed it. Sean Tan. Sean Tan. Sean Tan collaborated with Sean Pan on something oh, called Lost really Things. Sean Tan. Okay. Sean Tan. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. No, um, that book of his with no words is like my favorite. I can't the remember arrival. the title. The Arrival yes, is the one arrival. of my favorite fantasy books of all time. It's just amazing. So. What's the story of the arrival? Um, uh, someone it's arriving. Like immigrants. A, it's yeah, just, immigrants it's like arriving different in different immigrants. City. Yeah. And they're kind of weird. It's contact story. It's no. Uh-uh. No. No. Huh. Yes. Oh, it is? Yeah. How long is it? It's 15 minutes long. You can get it on YouTube? Kind no, it's on the. Well, if you go to SF Signal, they have it up. Really? They have a link. Cool. Yeah. I've been looking for it for months. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> yes, Question please. Uh, I just wondered in your survey of the steampunk literature, did you find that humor was always a strong element of it, or was that just kind of in recent years when just the addition of. It depends on what you find funny, sir. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I, again, I, the question is a little too broad because the answer is yes and no and maybe. Um, I, 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 there's been humor in, in stuff that's defined as steampunk since the very beginning that it's been there and there's been serious material as well. It just, um, I, I, I think zombies that, I and think steampunk? I don't know. I think, I, I'm sure it's out there. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of erotic steampunk as well, which we got loads of as uh, submissions to the Steampunk Reloaded. No, thank you. Um, and <laughs> since it was for an anthology we would like teens to read, um, we were not able to take it, even though it was all of uniformly high quality. Um, <laughs> Another project for somebody else. True that. And all this is just a tenth of a clever segue to talk about the international stuff you guys have mm. done. Well, um, we've we've done that for a while. I mean, uh, Ministry of Whimsy, my press, was the first publisher to bring Zoran Zivkovich in English into the United States. And uh, Leviathan series has always had translations. We had Russian translations and translations from a few other countries. So now we're doing a project called Leviathan 5, where we're up in the ante considerably 
in that we're going to have somewhere between 20 and 30 foreign language editors for the open reading period so that writers in other <coughs> countries, obviously we cannot cover everybody and somebody will be disgruntled and that's okay. Next time we will try to do better, but this is the best we can do considering we don't want to die during a project from exhaustion and lack of hydration. Um, but we'll have, anyway. we'll have these foreign language editors who are people that we mostly came into contact with through the weird, so, uh, the weird anthology we did so we know something about their taste in fiction, which is important, um, that, that writers in those languages in those countries will be able to submit even if they don't write in English. And of course, writers in other countries who do write in English can submit to uh, us directly during this open reading period for Leviathan 5, which will also focus on new writers. If you've had more than two books published in English, you can't submit to this, this anthology. Um, and that's why we've done things like fundraising and whatnot, because it's a tremendous risk for the publisher, Chizine Publications in this case, to do something where there is no hook, there is no best-selling author involved, there is no established author involved. Um, but we're very passionate about this in part because we know what Zoran Zivkovich went through to get published in English, mm -hmm. which is to say he spent thousands and thousands of dollars of his own money, which he did not have, just to get those translations made, just to have Serbian editions printed in English to be able to send overseas and eventually over a period of a decade finally get published in the English language. Why is that important? It's important because a reader, uh, an, an editor in Spain will read an English language book, but they will not probably know Serbian. So it's not right. simply that you're translating into English, it is that you're also giving the writer the opportunity then, just because English is this kind of dominant language, to then get translated into other languages, reach other readers, which is so important for the careers of writers in terms of being able to sustain a career in this environment, especially with the kind of volatile nature of it right now. And to so. reach a larger audience, which is really the whole point, yeah. and that's what we really want more than anything, yeah. is to reach the widest audience possible. And that's what I love about what you guys are doing. Oh, thank because you. if science fiction, may it, you know, it can it cannot just be a little American fiefdom, you know, or it will die, you know. And the world, it's it's becoming globalized. That is becoming mm -hmm. globalized. Part. I mean, it always was international, but commercially, it was not. Well, know. something that really struck us, um, we we do travel a lot whenever we can, and we love to travel. And when we were traveling around Europe all the different countries that we went into, we would go into a bookstore, and the books that we saw were all American or British writers, you know, in Portugal and Germany and all these so other countries, not, not in France, but in other, in other countries. It's, Absolutely. It's we saw, yeah. you know, American and British writers, but they weren't really promoting so much writers from their own country, and the reason why is because of the number of readers. So that's one of the things that we want to try and turn that around, and when we were in Portugal, as a matter of fact, they introduced us to the one science fiction writer, the one horror writer, you know, Portugal. And um, they, to, to give them that platform where their voices can be heard in other places and they reach a wider audience. Yeah, I was, I, even in France, I, it, which mm -hmm. is in many ways the birthplace of science fiction, mm -hmm. you have the same problem. And it's a problem with their market and their writers well, and the whole. Yeah. But you guys are actually... <laughs> or, or actually assaulting that wall well, I mean, in, a, in a real way. We, we're, um, and I, more and more as I get older and realize I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, I, I try to tend not to write about things on my blog, but actually try to do something <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's just more effective and maybe something will actually come of it. But to give you two examples of writers who are underpublished in English, Lena Krohn is an amazing Finnish writer who wrote a book called Tanneron. It's the only book of hers in English. It's about talking insects in a fantastical city, and it is Kafkaesque. I mean, it is of that level. And that's the only book of hers in English, and she's written 18 books. M Michael uh, Ajvaz is, has had two books published by Dalkey Archive Press in English. He is approaching, Amazing. I think, his late 60s. And it is not until now that he's published in English, and he is probably one of the best fantasy writers I've ever read. Mm -hmm. And he has another ton of books that are not published. So that, to us, indicates that it's kind of the tip of an iceberg, <laughs> that there are writers out there who are not getting published um, in English that are worthy of being published in English. I mean, it just we already know of uh, more, a ton of them that need more more representation. So it's kind of exciting because yeah. there's all this great stuff out there that we want to be able to read. And unfortunately, I carry the Vandermeer gene that allows me to barely, barely be proficient in English, let alone learn any other language. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> But cool. you can dance for the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, like I say, I think it's uh, that's. I mean, I didn't want to 
lock you guys into being. Uh, the reason I asked the question about cyberpunk is not because I Steampunk. see you as uh, KW Jader. It's okay. But, as, <laughs> but uh, you're, guy, you're people who who know about the field because yeah. you've had you've had to negotiate it. You're diplomats. You work in it. You use it. It uses you. You sail that sea. It definitely so, uses and us. Who else? I think it's. I think it's it's not it's not a frustration with the question. It's a. It's, it's, it's a frustration with always being labeled as one thing, which we know is human nature, so we just go with it. Um, but, um, but we don't want some, one thing to eclipse everything else we're doing or define it, so, um, so we continue to fight against it even though it's useless. <laughs> I'll have you know we did a pirate anthology too, and it's quite, quite A good. very commercial pirate anthology. Yes. All yes. original stories. I wrote a Predator Several novel. Several of them picked up for years know that. best. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I can sell out with the best of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take uh, one or two more questions, and we'll let these guys go home. <laughs> Come on, you got to have some concern, at least, if nothing else, or issue. Just not a personal issue, please. <laughs> well... If people got no more questions, and if you guys would like to sum up anything, we'll. This is a very interesting presentation. Uh, well, this is my first time here at the Variety Theater, and this was totally awesome. I want to thank Terry, and I want to mm -hmm. thank Rena, and everybody else that's involved yeah. in this, and all of you that came and sat through this. Yeah. And, and I'd and also like um, James. Questions. Yeah, I'd like Jane Gates to stand up. She's done an amazing job for my book, Monstrous Creatures. So, thank you so much for doing the publicity for it. All right, so All right. next uh, month we have Michael Blumline. Who's right here and is an amazing right. writer. Right here. He's not an amazing writer. He's an astonishing writer. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and Peter Beagle. Peter Beagle. Uh, two heavy hitters. Cool. Cool. Uh, All right. Buy him a drink. Save it. <laughs> Don't all of you buy a Save drink. a chow. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.